It was Queen Victoria's favorite getaway. And once Sir Walter Scott wrote about it, the Scottish Highlands became a coveted destination. He wrote about the land of mountain and of flood, with every valley a battle and every stream a song. Coming up, we'll take the high road to Loch Lomond. Among domestic destinations, the Alabama tourism director tells us how he promotes the state's attractions and recommends a few of his favorites. Years ago, when I went to a trade show in Las Vegas, the song Sweet Home Alabama came on and everybody in the room cheered. I thought, wow, pay attention to this. And we look at the enormous role Spain and its artists have played in the art world and what to look for in the museums of Madrid. Without El Greco, there could be no Impressionism, there could be no Cubism, there could be nothing. El Greco started the whole thing 400 years before. Come along, it's Travel with Rick Steves. It's a project I completed during the pandemic, and it's probably my proudest hour, or six. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll go a little deeper into what I learned in preparing the Rick Steves Art of Europe TV series. Today, we'll explore the enormous role Spain has played for the last 500 years in the world of art. Also, the tourism director for the state of Alabama tells us what his office has been doing to raise his state's profile as an international tourism destination. Attractions range from sugary beaches and tasty barbecue joints to monumental sites of the U.S. civil rights movement. We're at 877-333-7425 or by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. Let's start the hour with an insider's look at the Scottish Highlands. We're going to talk about the Highlands right now with Scottish tour guide Anne Doig. Anne, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Nice to be here. What, what are the Highlands? Explain just the big picture. Well, the Highlands are an area of Scotland northwest of a fault line which runs through the country in a diagonal line. And quite amazingly enough, the geology also follows, or the, the culture and the sociology follows that line. Everything north and west of that is culturally, socially, politically, okay. the Scottish Highlands. So everything you think of as Scotland, like the wearing of the kilt and the Highland dancing and the speaking of the Gaelic language, it is northwest of that line. So that is interesting. The, the line, it defines two geological regions, yes. but it also is a cultural, cultural divide. Cultural divide as well. To me, I think, as you mentioned, that is sort of the quintessential Scotland. Is, is that accurate? Is that what really is the, the, the soul of Scotland? That's what everybody sees as the soul of Scotland. Okay, yeah. But actually, uh, a lot of people would argue that was because of the writings of Sir Walter Scott, because he wrote about the land of mountain and of flood with every valley a battle and every stream a song. And his writings romanticised the highlands of Scotland before that, the Highlands were a place of a lot of clan battles that were considered wild, Those savage. ruffians and poverty-stricken. Yes, and just... poverty-stricken. And all of a sudden in the 19th century, with Queen Victoria's diaries and Sir Walter Scott, everything Highland Celtic became the height of fashion. And Walter Scott had quite an impact, impact. on Queen Victoria. Yes. Because, I mean, it was sort of a, a battle between serious uh, rivals, but then... England beats Scotland basically politically and they disperse the clans and outlaw the kilt. And suddenly, when all over Europe, romantic writers and poets and composers are stirring the souls of local patriots, of, of downtrodden groups, yes. Walter Scott bolsters Scottish sort of nationalism. Yes, absolutely. And Queen Victoria, and Queen Victoria 
embraced it. Everything was tartan in Balmoral. And it was quite ironic because that was the time of the Highland Clearances. The native people who, that was their culture, were actually being cleared off the land and replaced by sheep. So they romanticised the whole history when it was a very tragic time for the actual native people of Scotland. We exported, as our biggest export as people, and particularly from the Highlands, because uh, the economy there was always very fragile very compared. Very so yes. people might as well go somewhere else to find good farmland exactly. or something like this. Population went up, long dark winters, you know, <laughs> nothing else to <laughs> do, right. and the land couldn't support the people, like uh, Ireland. Yeah, as travellers, uh, I think a lot of people find it the most romantic part of Scotland. Yes. H- how do we best enjoy the Highlands? Well, it's very easy to get to the Highlands from either Edinburgh or Glasgow. Glasgow, you just leave Glasgow heading north and you're half an hour and you're at Loch Lomond. The uh, mountain there is over 3,000 feet, very popular to climb. And Loch Lomond, is, this is sort of the gateway to the Highlands? It's the gateway to the Highlands. Because that is, the, there's a, a famous song about you take You'll the You'll take the high road and I'll take the low road, yes. And then you've got these mountains. Tell us about the Munros. The Monroes were surveyed by a pedantic minister called Hugh Monroe, and there's just under 300 of them, and there's, you have to be over 3,000 feet to be a Monroe. Okay, so if you're a hiker in Scotland, you want to you conquer want to all conquer the Monroes. You want to conquer a Monroe. It's <laughs> called Monroe bagging. Yeah, Monroe bagging. <laughs> yes. There's something about the high latitude or, I don't know, the sparse the, population. The light, well, for me too, it's the light, because you're very far north, yeah, and if right. you get you have big skies, yeah. and I, I feel our mountains are kind of friendly, although yeah. they can be dangerous, of course, but they're sort got, of together. I heard somebody refer to them as uh, quality over quantity. When yes, it comes that's to right. A, a staggering 3,000 foot summit. Yes. This is Travel with Rick Steves. As we do every week, we're exploring another part of our world with an expert who can give us an insight into that culture and that land. Today, it's the Scottish Highlands, and we're joined by Anne Doig. Our phone number is 877 333 7425. Bill's calling in from St. Cloud in Florida. Bill, thanks for your call. Thank you for having me. We'd like to plan a trip over there. And I was wondering, what is the best time of year to go into the Highlands and see the heather blooming? Oh, well, the heather is the end of August and the beginning of September. That's the grouse shooting season. There's two types of native heather. Uh, the, the vast majority is ling, and that's when it flowers. But there's another one called bell heather, and it starts flowering in July. But I would recommend the end of August, beginning of September for the heather. You do have a, a problem in the summer of all these little midges, these little bugs. Uh, and what's the story with the noceums? The noceums, little midges. Well, they like damp, they don't like wind, and if you walk through the heather when it's damp and not windy, they'll drive you crazy. You kill one and 10,000 come to its funeral. But personally, I haven't been bothered because I know it's vegetation and it's a certain time of the day. And if you avoid a certain time of the day, if it's damp and no wind... Avoid that time and you're fine. So avoid the damp little ravines. Well, don't go uh, into vegetation when it's damp and there's no wind. Like hiking through heather, it's a nightmare. They just get disturbed and they just love eating you. Thanks for the call, Bill. Thanks. Bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. And Gerald in Portland, Oregon, emailed us, I enjoyed the east side of Loch Ness, the falls of Foyers, a sheepdog demonstration at Lealt Farm near Aviemore, and the Speyside Whiskey Trail. Don't miss the cooperage. I loved Ballindolach Castle. And do try the haggis. Wow, there's quite a listing, and there's some great ideas. The east side of Loch Ness. So that means the big road is on the 
He means the south side. The south side, the yeah. Big, the main road is the north side and uh, southeast, it runs southeast. Not many uh, visitors go there. So you do have the option to go on the other side. You'll miss the Urquhart Castle so, and um, you'll miss all the very touristy Loch Ness uh, exactly, exhibition yeah. centers. And the sheepdog demo... I was up there and enjoyed a great sheepdog demonstration. That's the same one, yeah. If somebody wants to go to a sheepdog demonstration, and it really is uh, an amazing uh, spectacle, how do you do that and where do you go? Well, the best one is the one that this chap mentioned, Lielt, Lielt Farm. Farm, because it's, it is quite accessible. It's just off the A9, the main route from Inverness to Edinburgh. They do have them in other places, but in my opinion, this this is the best one. And this is Lielt, L-E-A-U-L-T. U-L-T farm near Aviemore, A-V-I-E-M-O-R-E. Yeah. And then uh, the whiskey trail. If you're going to, uh, you know, you'll see whiskey even in Edinburgh, but uh, in the countryside, what, what would be the best single whiskey stop in the countryside, Anne? Um, probably Glenlivet. It, it's, it's hard to say that. Everyone's got their own opinion. But yeah. I agree with this chat because uh, the Cooperage is at Craig Elachie, which is on the River Spey. Mm-hmm. And that area, unless you're a whiskey aficionado, that's a good word. <laughs> Uh, not many people visit it, and Ballandalloch Castle is amazing. And do you actually see a cooperage? Yes, you see the, a cooperage Because this, to there. me, is a great spectacle to see these artisans, these expert uh, craftsmen, making a, a wooden barrel. You do. With the metal bands around it That's and right. heating up the wood and forming it, and then it's watertight and mm-hmm. it's just right for your whiskey. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and Ballandalloch is where the famous Aberdeen Angus cattle were bred. All right. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're... We're talking about the Highlands, and Kathy's on the phone in Huntington Beach, California. Kathy, thanks for your call. Hi. I'm taking a group of high school girls, Girl Scouts, to the Highlands next year. We're renting a car out of going out to Glasgow and then ending up in Edinburgh, and I want to have any suggestions. The girls are heavy into Harry Potter, and I know a lot of shots were done up there, and mm-hmm. where you suggest maybe they would they want to do that island of sky, and if you have any suggestions where do you think young girls would like the best. One of the major Harry Potters was at Glenfinnan. There's a huge viaduct there, and they filmed the Hogwarts Express going over there. Hmm. So if they if they love Harry Potter, that would be the Highland connection. In Edinburgh, there's a, a coffee shop where J.K. Rowling first penned her first Harry Potter book called The Elephant House, and hmm. there's a poster saying, birthplace of Harry Potter. Everyone takes photographs of that. But other than that, uh, most of it was England. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're going there, too. (laughs) Well, Kathy, have fun with your Girl Scouts. I think that's going to be a great experience for them, and there's there's plenty of fun to have. And let us know how your trip goes with all those 15- and 16-year-old Girl Scouts and the wonders (laughs) of the Highlands. Thank you very much. You're a courageous tour guide. (laughs) Thanks. Bye. Anne Doig has shown hundreds of travelers the timeless majesty of Scotland over the years from her home base in Edinburgh. She's with us today on Travel with Rick Steves to help us explore the Scottish Highlands. That's the region that sweeps across the legendary battlefields and the glens and peaks that lead to Loch Ness and into the rugged Cairngorm National Park and Royal Deeside. And when I travel through Scotland, especially up in the Highlands, I get this sense that there's a, well, you know, the last uh, word of William Wallace. Freedom. Freedom. <laughs> uh, at least according to Hollywood. Yes. Um, what, what it, as we visit Scotland, we're going to yes. get that feeling. How might we better understand where that comes from? Well, when we united with England, they were going to call Scotland North Britain. And instead of uh, 
damping down the culture, the culture just got ramped up. And it really does date back to a period called the Scottish Wars of Independence. And I'm not really a warry type person. But after a great battle, which was a great victory for Scotland, the Pope still did not recognise Scotland as a sovereign nation. So the abbot of Arbroath and along with the Scottish nobles, they wrote an appeal to the Pope on behalf of the Scottish people to recognise Scotland as independent. And one part of it goes, for as long as a hundred of us remain alive, we will never be subject to English domination because it's not for glory, honours or riches that we fight, but for freedom alone, which no good man gives up but with his life. And I think that's where that strong, independent feeling that you find in Scotland comes from. And what century does that date to? It was written in 1320. In the 14th century. century. And today, in the 21st century, that passion for freedom is still there. And we feel that when we travel through Scotland, especially up in the Highlands. Yes, it um, it echoes throughout the centuries. And my thing is that it was provided inspiration for your Declaration of Independence because Jefferson knew David Hume. He knew he had all the Scottish writers in his library and that gives me goosebumps. (laughs) Well, for that, we are thankful to Scotland. And Andoig, I'm thankful for you to coming into our studio and sharing a little bit about Scotland, specifically the Highlands. Thanks so much. Yes, take (laughs) care. I'm tickled that people are enjoying how the Rick Steves Art of Europe TV series is preparing them to appreciate the art masterpieces of Europe when they finally get to see them in person. We'll take a look at the influence of Spain on the arts in just a minute. And later, we're off to see the sights in Alabama. It's Travel with Rick Steves. If you were to write a six-part TV series telling the story of Europe's art, much of the gorgeous art featured could be filmed in Madrid. In fact, in one great museum, in the Prado. I was just there filming this spring as we wrapped up our two-year-long project, our six-hour TV miniseries called Rick Steves' Art of Europe. The series is airing now across the nation on public television. Throughout the project, great local guides helped us both get access to the art and to better understand that art. And in Madrid, our local guide was Javier Menor. When we were finally finished in the Prado and packed up our gear, our crew enjoyed a quick tour by Javier, and I was so inspired by what Javier shared with us that I just had to invite him here on our show, Travel with Rick Steves. So, right now, we're joined in our studio by Gene Openshaw, who's the lead writer of the entire series, and Javier, who lives and works in Madrid for a virtual stroll through one of the greatest art galleries anywhere, the Prado. First of all, Gene, thanks for joining us. Hola, amigos. Hola, we're getting a Spanish mindset. And Javier. Hola, how are you doing, Javier? Hola, buenos días. I'm good. Thank you for joining us, Javier. And, you know, the Prado, to me, a lot of people don't appreciate it, but it is so rich in paintings. And as a guide, what is your teaching agenda when you take a visitor through the greatest art gallery in Spain, the Prado? First of all, you need to put people in the right mindset because the concentration of incredible art is so big in there that you have to tell people that I'm afraid I can't show you everything. We're going to have to choose. So first of all, is the mindset to start enjoying what they're going to see. Now, Gene, you've been there many times as a guide. If you were to take us through a walk through the gallery, um, it's kind of like walking through Spanish history. What sort of insights would you share? Exactly. It's even more than Spanish history. It's really a snapshot of Europe circa 1500. 
um, because the kings, the Spanish kings at the time, were also emperors of this vast empire that stretched all across Europe, and they just hoovered up all of this art from all around Europe, altarpieces from Belgium and Flanders. They got the great Renaissance painters from Italy, Titian and Raphael and so, and so on, as well as the homegrown Spanish art that was fueled by the the great wealth that came in as the Spaniards were conquering the world, Columbus and so on, and going abroad and, and coming home with all of that wealth. The Prada Museum started with the King's Collection. So that's why we talk so much, so much about the kings when we're at the Prado, because it was generations of kings that put that collection together, and then that collection became a national collection. That is the Prado Museum. So that's a, such a good point, is we've got to put ourselves back in a mindset when we have the absolute monarchs, the divine monarchs, and the empires that they put together. In fact, way back uh, 500 years ago, the Netherlands were called the Spanish Netherlands. And uh, I love the work of Hieronymus Bosch uh, from the Low Countries, uh, Flanders. And if you want Bosch, you don't go to Flanders, you go to Madrid. Uh, Javier, when we were there, we were producing, and you were our guide, and you got us permission at the Prado, but they were quite um, limiting in what they gave us. They were very generous to give us one hour before the museum was open, and we could only shoot five pieces of art. It was such a fun challenge. It's a little frustrating because we could have spent all day there. But which paintings did you take us to on that one hour? We were aiming for two days, two hours, but they were adamant. No, just one day, one hour. So we started with the Rembrandt. The crew did their magic. Then uh, we rushed to film a couple paintings by Rubens. There was a painting by uh, Velasquez. Ending up with uh, one of the uh, highlights of Goya's work, the shootings of May the 3rd. We cannot do the one next to it, May the 2nd, just May the 3rd, because we didn't have the permission. So let me get this straight. Because I'm picturing the Prado, which is a huge museum. So you guys had one hour. 60 minutes. And you raced to see the, one, the, the paintings that Javier mentioned. Javier went there the week before, and he, he plotted it out, and he gave me a piece of paper with how many <laughs> minutes it takes to walk from this to that. So I had it all broken out. Seven minutes to shoot here, three minutes to walk there, set it up, five minutes to shoot here. We got done with five minutes to spare. I wanted so bad just to get a little bit more of Val Greco or Goya, and the guard said nothing. Wow. This sounds like the Prado Triathlon. Yo, it was, it was Run, like, set up, shoot, ready, set, go. But I got to say, and Javier, let me know what you think about this, but the Prado is so strict about photography, whether you're a TV crew or just a tourist. And you took us around after it opened, and we were there with all the tourists, Nobody, if you even took your iPhone, out, your cell phone out of your pocket, a guard would be on you and say, no photos. Absolutely. You cannot take a single photo in there. So people give up on that. They put their camera away and they're in the moment. And I don't know about you guys, but I felt it was a beautiful thing not to have the opportunity, the option to photo because the museum was filled with people who were looking at the art instead of people who were posing in front of cameras. For some people, it's... Uh... It's a bugger, but in the end, I think it pays off. Because, yes, you, you're looking at the painting. Who cares about a picture of a painting? Just look at the painting and take it with you. Yeah, remember, take it with you in your memory. Yep. You can buy a postcard when you're done, if you want to. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Gene Openshaw, who essentially wrote our six-hour miniseries that's airing all over the country right now. 
The show's called Rick Steves' Art of Europe, and we're joined by Javier Menor. He's our go-to guide in Madrid when it comes to enjoying the art. Um, Javier, when we were finished filming, you took us on a a special tour of, of Velázquez. And, you know, he was the court painter, and he had to, his job was to paint, you know, the prince looking really good on a horse. I've never seen a five-year-old kid look so good on a horse as the one that Velázquez painted. But Velázquez also had an appetite for getting us out into the streets and into the bars. And that one painting that we did, the, the Feast of Bacchus, right? That was so vivid. Tell us about that one. Yeah, we went to see these uh, Feast of Bacchus or um, La Fiesta de Baco. And uh, some people like to see a reflection of uh, those Spanish soldiers in Flanders, how they were, maybe it was a decline of the empire. And that's why um, drinking all day, they're not up to the task of fighting anymore. That is just one of the versions of that painting. But uh, that is the fascinating part. You can find many versions. I can picture that. Those guys look pretty S-faced, whatever the... Done yeah. fighting. Yeah, done, done fighting. fighting. Put uh, it right to, now I'm a lover, yeah. not a fighter. It was <laughs> yeah. a selfie of a bunch of drunk yeah. guys, a good old boys club in yeah. a bar, and <laughs> they were joined by the God of Wine. Of course. And was, who's, who's serving it up? Gene, one of the highlights for me is Goya. I'm fascinated by Goya. And he's an artist that goes through stages in his career. Give us a, a quick review of the work of Goya from an evolution. Yeah, he, he does go through stages, and you can see each of these in, in, in the Prado. You know, he started as a court painter. So you can see these portraits that he did dutifully as a good court painter of the king and his wife. But then you could also see how he put a little twist on it and made the king look kind of goofy, kind of weird, with Moony. a weird yeah. smile yeah. on his face. So it's kind of his, his, his political views were starting to come through. Yeah. But he dutifully did, you know, he painted the aristocrats playing blind man's bluff and, and going off on picnics. But he also painted the political revolutions that were going on in Spain at the time. People might know his 3rd of May painting. That's, oh. that's with the patriots getting lined up and just mowed down by the soldiers of France, right? Uh, exactly. These revolutionaries who've been arrested and now they're getting uh, executed by a firing squad. And you just look at each of the faces that Goya paints, and you can understand both the anguish of, of oh. these people as well as their yearning to be free. Well, and conversely, the lack of faces on the firing squad. That made them completely dispassionate, like it's the individual against the man. And we got to show that, and, and in so many ways it feels like Goya was the, the first painter that I can think of with a social conscience that really wanted to make a statement with his art. He was influencing people at a time when people all over Europe were rising up against their kings and queens. And then Goya kind of OD'd on all of that emotion and frustration, and he finished quite dark. And he was rejected by, you know, he, he, he wanted to paint what he wanted, and he ended up living alone, and he was lonely, and the paintings reflect it. They call it his dark period, and they're rather horrific visions oh. of monsters and uh, witches. that Saturn he, eating his child. Yeah, that's gory. That's, and, 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 you can't unsee that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Javier took us after the Prado to Reina Sofia. And just like in Paris, when you go to the Louvre, you want to follow that with the Orsay Gallery, I think when you go to Madrid, you want to follow the Prado with Reina Sofia. And it celebrates Spain's 20th century artistic genius, I would say. Um, this, of course, is the famous museum with Picasso's Guernica. 
But there's lots more. There's uh, Cubism, there's Miro, there's Picasso, there's amazing surrealism. In fact, those names, Dali, Picasso, Miro, all Spanish artistic geniuses. It's a museum with a personality, that's for sure. With, as you said, the centerpiece being Guernica. Oh, Guernica. And Jean, talk about Guernica. What, what is so powerful about Guernica? It's so powerful both in its style but also the uh, event that it represented. The very first saturation bombing in Europe that, that prefigured World War II that first gave a hint that war was on the horizon. And it was perfect because uh, Picasso's cubist style allowed him to take the bomb-shattered village and piece it together onto the canvas. So you're seeing the aftermath of this bombing. The, the soldier that has fallen with his broken sword, a woman running through, screaming with her, carrying a lamp, another woman holding her baby that's, that's dead, really, that's like a kind of pieta, modern pieta. So, Jean, Guernica is uh, this big... Would you call it monochrome? I mean, it's kind of black and white. Basically black and white, like a collage that sums up what what would become with World War II and the horror of war and the collateral damage collateral that comes damage. from it. It really makes collateral damage um, visual. Javier, there's a fascinating story of Guernica. Tell us the, the, the life story of Guernica. Yeah, a lot of people might think about uh, Guernica in Spain and how uh, Picasso didn't want the painting back. But uh, we have to understand that uh, Guernica was painted in Paris. Picasso was not in Spain at the time. Uh-huh. Spain was living the civil war. And Picasso was outside, painted the Guernica, then the World War II started, and the painting was transferred to the U.S. And it was in New York for a few decades. And there was a contract signed between Picasso and the MoMA Museum. The painting will never travel to Spain until the liberties are restored. In other words, until you get rid of your dictator, the fascist dictator, Franco. In the 1970s, and then the first democratic government started negotiations, and the Guernica came for the first time in the 1980s, as it was Picasso's will. And that's because of Picasso's interest in not letting the... It it had a rightful home in Madrid, but only when Madrid was free. Correct. Wow. And uh, even to this day, there's a big tapestry that hangs in the United Nations building of Guernica, and it just reminds all the people in the United Nations of the, what Gene said, collateral damage. I mean, when, when you have a war, there's a lot of collateral damage, and that needs to be taken into account. Spanish tour guide and arts expert Javier Menores on the phone with us from Madrid. And right here in the studio with me is Gene Openshaw, my collaborator on the Rick Steves Art of Europe miniseries. We're exploring the important contributions Spain has made in the arts right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Just We're out of time now, and I would just love to sum it up here. Gene, there are so many great Spanish artists. So just, I was just sort of blown away just by thinking of the names of the great Spanish artists uh, that we've already mentioned. Of all of these, is there one that gives you a particularly enjoyable insight into the soul of Spain? Which would be your favorite oh, Spanish Oh, yeah. I, I would definitely, for that question, I would pick El Greco. Um, because he really sums up Spanish art in a lot of ways. As his name suggests, he was born in Greece, and he learned how to paint icons like in Greece. He trained in Venice, so he learned these bright colors and twisted forms. And then he moved to Spain, where he was influenced by the strong faith and mysticism of Spanish religion. And he took all of those elements together to create these supernatural visions. They're like moments of ecstasy, 
The saints are stretched out and long and emaciated. They seem to stretch from earth up into heaven. You can almost see their souls shining through. They flicker like candles. It's like he summed up the many elements that went into great Renaissance Spanish art. Gene, I just want to bang my head on the table and say, amen. I just had an El Greco ecstatic vision there. I will use a line often about El Greco is that without Greco, there is nothing. He was misunderstood for centuries, but in the 19th century, 20th century, without El Greco, there could be no Impressionism, there could be no Cubism, there could be nothing. El Greco started the whole thing 400 years before. So, In other wow. words, he was able to free himself from... Um, he was freed to go beyond realism. Javier, for your last thought, a lot of us, we know El Greco, we know Goya, we know Velázquez, but there's a lot of great Spanish artistic genius in the 20th century. Uh, how would you coach us, help us to appreciate how 20th century great Spanish artists help us better understand the soul and the spirit of Spain? Wow, that's a tough one. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't get that one. <laughs> I could say, especially, we have to talk in the early 20th century, because that was before the war. That was, those are the days of the luminous artists like Sorolla, whose work is phenomenal. A great museum that nobody goes to, by the way, in Madrid, Sorolla. That's with Sorolla double L, right? Sorolla. Painted, Sorolla. Of, painted of light. Yes. So beautiful. I love that museum. In the Reina Sofia, one of my favorites will be a Cubist, Juan Gris. I love his work. And that's spelled G-R-I-S, Juan Gris, right. Spain was experimenting. Spain was looking at France, trying to discover what those people were doing and trying to replicate it here. The young painters traveling, coming back, trying to do their own thing. So those early 1900s were fascinating times for the arts. When you think about the early 1900s, you, you kind of think of Paris as being the cradle of modern I think art. Of Picasso going there, And it yeah. certainly was. But, but who, was the, who was there? It was Picasso, a Spaniard. It was, as Javier said, it was Juan Gris. It's Picabia. It's Juan Miro. It's, and, and in the next uh, generation, Salvador Dali. And so much of modern art, even if it was geographically located in Paris, it was definitely pioneered by Spaniards. So maybe my question should have been better put, what is it about Spain that produces these groundbreaking artists that may go to Paris and change the trajectory of European art? Hunger. 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 Discover, huh. Desire to discover new things. Hunger. I love that. Hunger. Hunger. Isn't that what drives so many young artists? A hunger to do something new and discover something new. That's great. A hunger to teach people to appreciate art and learn from it. <laughs> Gene Openshaw, Javier Menor, thank you so much. Best wishes for both you guys in your continued passion for, for teaching and tour guiding. Thanks, Rick. Thanks for having me. We'll look at the trend of some museums who are rearranging their collections around particular themes. You can hear how the Reina Sofia Museum in Madrid is handling that in an online extra to today's interview. It's with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. That's also where you can find out how to send us an original haiku poem about your travels, one that we might even read on the air one day, like these. Donnie Willett sends us a batch of haiku written from a window seat on a flight from San Diego to Nice, France. Here's what the view was like. The earth cracked and split, 
a maze called the Grand Canyon, river's course defined. Patches round and square, farmer's geometric art, patterns on the earth. Walk upon the clouds, body's impossible dream, playground of my mind. Send us haiku impressions from your travels. There's a link in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Mention Alabama and what comes to mind for you. Battlefields? Yeah, from the Civil War to the Civil Rights era. Aerospace research in Huntsville. The training grounds of the Tuskegee Airmen? Or powerhouse college football? Alabama's outdoors attractions run from mountain trails in the Appalachian foothills to prehistoric mounds, year-round golfing, and warm water beaches on the Gulf of Mexico. And Birmingham happens to be the site of the first National Veterans Day Parade, celebrating its 75th anniversary this year. To help us better understand the job of promoting Alabama as a visitor destination, we're joined by Lee Santel. He's been the state's tourism director now for 20 years and joins us on Travel with Rick Steves from the studios of our affiliate WBHM in Birmingham. Hey, Lee, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Boy, you're, you're in your fifth term as the Alabama State Tourism Director. Um, how long is the term? Four years. Five terms, 20 years, and you've increased the revenue up to $20 billion in the state last year. So what has your focus been? What is your key to success? Why are more people coming to Alabama now? I think uh, we work very hard to promote uh, different areas and different themes Because my background is newspapers, I was a journalist for 15 years. And so when I got this position, I wanted to make sure that at least every newspaper in the state, as well as surrounding states, would write about us at least once a year. So Mm -hmm. I've done year of campaigns. But the first one that got anybody's attention was the year of Alabama food. We created a campaign called 100 Dishes to Eat Before You Die. So that got a lot of attention. And By changing our list uh, every couple of years, uh, we're able to introduce great new restaurants to people uh, throughout the state. Uh And uh, plus, Birmingham has, I think, seven James Beard Award winners. For for those of you who don't know, that's sort of like saying uh, those are home runs. Mm. When I'm on the road, a home run is finding a new dish I didn't know about, (laughs) which is sort of a a state dish. We've got, I think, crab from Mobile Bay is a big deal. Yes, it absolutely is. And, uh, of course, we're we're known for our barbecue, as South Carolina and other states are. In Alabama, you've got white sauce barbecue. What's what's with the white sauce? Yes, uh, that's from my hometown of Decatur up near Huntsville. Big Bob Gibson's barbecue, been there since 19, I think, 27. Big Bob, and you know it's got to be good if it's Big Bob. <laughs> He he earned that name uh, properly, uh, <laughs> and it, you know he puts the recipe out there, and there are about four or five different brands, but it's vinegar and mayonnaise. Okay, and then biscuits are a big deal. What what, what should we know about biscuits when we're in Alabama? Don't eat too many of them. <laughs> but we're also known for unclaimed baggage up in Northeast Alabama. If you lose your luggage. You can probably show up down at Unclaimed Baggage and buy it back for them. But it's a business. It's a family business that's been going on for 40, 50 years. And they have a million visitors a year, people just coming through to look at what people left behind or what uh, happened when your luggage got 
sent to the wrong place. But it, it's a fun place to go and visit. That's a random uh, sightseeing attraction, but I can see how it might be curious for people. Have you lost any luggage in the past? Thank goodness, no. But uh, <laughs> I hear people are doing it these days more and more. Um, you know, Lee, you're talking about bringing more people into the state. And big cities have a certain cultural charm. But small towns, it feels like people are looking for small, kind of classic towns. What does Alabama have in the way of charming small towns? You're, you're absolutely right. Particularly since COVID, I think it's made people want to move away from uh, – big cities, uh, but there's a charming town on the mountains. It's Mentone. It's where, for a number of years, uh, there were like several dozen summer camps. Mentone is a place to find great food and charm and, and because it's, it's on top of a mountain. Do you notice in your state of Alabama that some towns just do a A-plus job in putting together festivals and entertaining events that just make people want to go there and spend the night and, and go out to a nice dinner? Uh, absolutely. Uh, one town, Sylacauga, is known as the Marble City and still has a lot of active veins for quarrying marble. And so they have a festival every year where people who have gotten marble from them display what they have created. So that's something that's quite different. Fairhope is a beautiful town close to Mobile, and they have probably the state's best arts festival. So it's a, a, that's a great destination. You know, I was thinking also about music. seems like, especially in the South, different states have a rich music heritage. And, of course, in Alabama, you got Muscle Shoals. Absolutely, yes, yes. There's been some amazing artists that have recorded in Alabama. I mean, think about Aretha Franklin, Wilson Pickett, Otis Redding. I mean, you don't get more soul than that. Yeah, Aretha Franklin, if you've seen the documentary Muscle Shows, Aretha Franklin says, I didn't have my my success until I came to Muscle Shows huh. because people were trying to make a torch singer out of her instead of from her great voice. And it's been powerfully successful, and it even attracts rock and roll stars, Paul Simon, Rod Stewart, the Rolling Stones. I mean, it, it must be almost like a pilgrimage for an established band to go to Muscle Shoals and record there. Oh, it is. And, and people will go there, you know, big stars, and say, we just had to come to to this little studio. And because the Muscle Shoals documentary, Dr. Dre called and said, I want to give a million dollars to y'all to restore that studio back to its perfect standards. I mean, that's just just stunning. We're exploring the year-round attractions in the heart of Dixie right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guest is the director of the Alabama Tourism Department for the last 20 years, Lee Centel. Their website is alabama.travel. What draws more uh, um, business for you, natural wonders or sports? Oh, probably natural wonders. Uh, during COVID, where the nationwide the industry was down 45%, we were down 20%. We were in the number six for the least loss in revenue, and that's because of our number of national parks and our other outdoor activities, particularly the beaches at Gulf Shores and Orange Beach. I mean, that's we have the most beautiful beaches in America. There's just no question. And uh, you can you can look at the car tags and see where the people are coming from. That must be fun for you as a tourism director to drive around and see, are these local people? Or are they from out of state? And if they're from out of state, what state are they coming from? What do you, what do you notice as you're out and about? Oh, there is, it's, it's, I'm on Interstate 65 from Chicago to Mobile. And 
sometimes I forget, oh, this is Beach Saturday, and I, that's uh, why I'm in all that traffic. So I can see the, the tags from Michigan and Indiana and Tennessee and Kentucky. And sometimes when I'm in that traffic, I just nod and say, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. I guess one thing that helped you was Leonard Skinner. <laughs> he did indeed. Years ago, when I went to a trade show in Las Vegas, the song Sweet Home Alabama came on, and everybody in the room cheered. I thought, wow, pay attention to this. And it was after going to see the movie Sweet Home Alabama, I thought, I may want to license that <laughs> phrase. So uh, I told my ad agency, I said, okay, let's look at all the themes we've had over the past 20 years put them on a poll, let people vote online. And so uh, it's like 75% of the people from out of state said they picked Sweet Home Alabama and almost that many uh, inside the state. So we licensed that to whoever now owns Universal Music. So when you see a print ad or a TV commercial, you won't see Alabama Tourism Department. You'll see Sweet Home Alabama. So the movie and the song... Uh, but that's modern history, so there's really no historical roots to that. That's a creation of, of pop culture in our generation almost. Yeah, the guys were not from Alabama, well, and, I'm great, and I'm grateful to you. You're lucky because that. I'm in the opposite end of this country, and the, but the only thing I know about uh, Alabama is Sweet Home Alabama, and when it comes on, I sing it, and it just fills me with uh, <laughs> happiness. It's, it's like you couldn't get a better tourism slogan. There was a list of all of the state slogans. A list online and ours came out number one, so I figured I'm sticking with that. Well, go with what works. But a lot of that is um, you got to be tuned into what what are the um, sensibilities of the age, and uh, there's a lot of reassessment of what is worth promoting and how should it be promoted. I'm thinking uh, specifically about antebellum stuff. Uh, antebellum means before the Civil War. Is that right? Yes. And a lot of great sites in the Deep South kind of celebrate the the culture from before the Civil War. How is that being reassessed, and, and what kind of a consideration are these these new sensibilities about uh, slavery and civil rights and everything for the bottom line of tourism in Alabama? It's a sensitive subject. We don't have as many uh, big homes like uh, Mississippi and and. Natchez in particular. Um, the one that I'm thinking about is owned by the Alabama Historical Commission, and that's uh, Joe Wheeler's house. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe Wheeler was the only Confederate general who later became a U.S. general uh, during the war in Cuba. And uh, it's thought of less as a slave house, although he did have slaves. And uh, people are reinterpreting uh, trying to to be more sensitive because I would think across the South now, big plantations, which you know, twenty years ago celebrated, oh, isn't this good? Let's have some another nice iced tea. Um, now they have to understandably deal with uh, the reality of a of a slave based society. Yeah, Williamsburg was the first major destination that I saw start to have these conversations of uh, twenty years ago. Because, you know, because African-Americans, as, as well as international visitors, were saying, wait a minute here. You know, you're, there's a story you're not telling. And so yeah. they, have, they, they have changed. We're joined by Alabama State Tourism Director Lee Sentel right now on Travel with Rick Steves. 
One of Lee's accomplishments has been to work with the National Park Service to expand the Alabama Civil Rights Trail into the U.S. Civil Rights Trail. Lee's authored an illustrated book about the sites called The Official United States Civil Rights Trail. He'll be back with us in January to talk more about that. We have web links to this week's show notes at ricksteves.com radio. Now, uh, we got to say, if you're a, a, a black citizen of Alabama, especially in recent decades, you would be encouraging people to learn about the civil rights movement. And I know you've been instrumental in this. You were um, a key player in putting together the Alabama Civil Rights Trail, and then you, you scaled that one up to the United States Civil Rights Trail. Tell us about the Civil Rights Trail legacy in your state of Alabama. People would be surprised to find out that George Wallace was somewhat responsible for what we are doing now. George Wallace was losing in 1982 when he was running for what became his last term. So and, he and, and, showed and just up. remind us, he was the governor who ran for—he's famous because he ran for president, and he was sort of a third party and pretty, pretty blatantly racist. George Wallace was very much uh, a racist governor, and— uh, Every other every two years, he would either run for president or, or run for reelection uh, as governor. But in 1982, he was running behind. So you don't know this, but Dexter Avenue Church, where Martin Luther King was the pastor, is one block in front of the state capitol. And one Sunday morning before the runoff, he showed up, wheeled himself down to the front of the church where Martin Luther King used to preach, and said, "I want to apologize." I have not treated you, your people, well, and I want your forgiveness. And so they just, accepted, just wheel they, your racist body down there and say you're sorry, and, and they're willing to talk. And they voted for him, and he got reelected. And so the guy who became his tourism director said, you owe African-Americans something. And so he, this, this guy, uh, Ed Hall, he got permission from Governor Wallace to do a black heritage guide which was mainly pictures of a lot of black churches because that's before you had museums. And so that was updated for the next 20 years, and I was aware of the publication. Uh But when I got there and I looked at it, I said, this is history, but it's not tourism. And so I pulled out what I thought were tourism assets and created the Alabama Civil Rights Trail. And that must have been an inspiration to other states because then you were able to parlay that into Really, I mean, that was instrumental in putting together our national civil rights trail. Is that correct? Absolutely. Because after President Obama said we need more diversity in terms of national parks and world heritage sites, we got Georgia State University to do a research project to find out what sites or how many sites would meet the minimum qualifications to be UNESCO sites. And so they came up with 60. And so I took that list to my counterparts and I said, Look inside your state to see what civil rights museums, what locations are motor coach groups going to now? Mm -hmm. And so they came up with about another 60. And so we put that together and created the U.S. Civil Rights Trail. In fact, you've written a book, which is an inspirational book in itself, called The Official United States Civil Rights Trail, What Happened Here Changed the World. Just paging through this book, it just makes you want to make a theme road trip and go all across, what is it, 100 monuments in 15 states? And, of course, on the cover is maybe the the ultimate um, inspirational part of a road trip, which would be walking uh, as a pilgrimage to the whole civil rights movement over the Edmund Pettus Bridge. 
I, I was glad to see that several publications have named the Edmund Pettus Bridge along with the Statue of Liberty and other monuments uh, among America's 10 most important landmarks. Well, the cover of your book, the way it's framed, the way the, the perspective of it, the Pettus Bridge arcs up. And when you study this and when you read about when you try to imagine being in that march, what was there? 600 black Americans silently protesting, walking over that knowingly into a basically a massacre against the police waiting on the other side of that that arc in the bridge. But right here, it invites you to walk up that bridge. And you just can't imagine the brutal welcome that awaits you on the other side of that. And thank God that it is it is memorialized in museums and in sites so that we can learn from this amazing crusade. If people don't know their history, they're doomed to repeat it. That's an old cliche, but I think it's, it's true. so true. It's, it's important to embrace history honestly, and uh, I feel like you have a, a philosophy of doing that. What, just as a person, not as a director of tourism, but as a person who, ca- who clearly cares about our country, like me, you're a privileged white guy who's got friends in high places, you put so much energy into challenging your, your neighbors into being honest about history. How can travel help us be better citizens? We hope that people are going to be curious about this and then go to these locations and find out, you know, what were the challenges uh, to those people uh, 50 years ago or 60 years ago. And uh, we're finding a lot of uh, Europeans uh, want to come now that the Equal Justice Initiative has a, a very dramatic museum and memorial in Montgomery it's bringing a lot of people. They had 500,000 people their second year. So uh, that's in Montgomery. So uh, I think people are traveling because they are curious and uh, they want to know how things changed. Lee Sentel, thank you for your work. And just to close things off, just to get back on a lighter note, take me out to dinner in your favorite little restaurant. What would you be sure that I eat to appreciate Alabama cuisine? Oh, you might go to, we might go to Chris Hastings Hot Nut Fish Club in Birmingham for the tomato salad, which you would think a, a tomato dish, but oh my goodness, after you finish that and all the bacon on it, uh, it's time to sit down. And then for dessert, I've heard a lot about banana pudding. Is that what I should try? You can't go wrong with banana pudding anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Lee, I'm on my way. Thank you so much for joining us. Happy travels. My pleasure. Thank you. Good being with you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Kaz Hall, and Donna Bardsley. We get promotion support from Sheila Gerzoff, website support from Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Find out more about our guests and listen to interview extras at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll see you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves, and I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's all in Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com.